following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, friends, we come now to 1 John, the first epistle of John. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles. This morning we're going to be looking at the first four verses of 1 John in chapter 1. It's both a joyous and challenging text as we work through it together. I've really truly enjoyed the challenge of the study for 1 John, but let me tell you, uh, it was a challenging study nonetheless. But we'll get into that as we dive into the text this morning. Friends, then with great joy, we hear from our living God this morning from 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as I said, we come to a somewhat difficult uh, letter within the New Testament canon. It's a glorious one. It's a beautiful one that points us to many beautiful truths about our Savior and the life of a believer. But as we see, and even as we read, we find somewhat almost a circular pattern that happens. It seems almost repetitive. And in this way, it becomes both extremely easy for an expositor because he says the same thing in almost different ways at times, but almost the same words exactly. And so then it's this, I can just say ditto, right? At the end of that, I can be like, yep, he said that, yep, he said that. But then it becomes also very challenging as an expositor to bring forth the reason and the purpose behind the text. Why does he repeat these words? Why does he say the things that he says? Why is God guiding him to write these very things? However, by God's grace this morning, we'll bring forth glorious realities from these first four verses and by so doing we'll grow deeper in love and knowledge of our savior jesus christ before we get into our study though i would like to lay out a few things just to give us an idea of first john as a book as a letter because it's different than most of the new testament letters it's almost seems odd or misplaced in ways because of the different nature of the letter. 
It doesn't have some of the classic things like an opening where he says, grace and peace to you. This is from the Apostle John to whomever. He doesn't say any of those things. He just dives right in. He says, that which was from the beginning. So there was no author given. So why do we call it then 1 John? Well, there's a number of reasons. First, it was attested by many writers in the early church. And even early writers outside of the church. But Irenaeus first quoted him in the 2nd century. And he said, this is by the disciple John, the apostle John. And this seems to hold good weight because Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. So we can see kind of a lineage where Polycarp would have said, yes, John wrote this letter. I can attest to John having written this letter. And we see many others, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, Dionysius of Alexandria, Cyprian. So we see that there's many that have attested to it being 1 John, but so what? Maybe they were all mistaken. How do we then really know that 1 John was from him? Well, the attesting is a good argument for it, but there's also similarities that we find in the gospel of John, the, the book that we know to be written by John and this letter that we call 1 John. They're similar writing styles. They have these contrasting themes of light and dark, life and death, love and hate. There's grammatical similarities there's many words and phrases in common, some which are only found within these two New Testament books. Theological themes that come out from the text, and also because the author himself claims to be a witness, claims to be a witness. He says that he can testify to it, and he can proclaim it, that he has heard and seen and looked upon and touched this word of life. And so we can argue and say, yes, this is definitely First John. Many New Testament scholars later on in the 18-1900s have now started to question and say, well, maybe it wasn't him. But there's no reason for us today to question the authenticity of this letter. There's no reason for us today to question that this is indeed from John the Apostle writing. Let's talk then about the date. When was this written? Well, I don't know if many of you know this, but the Apostle John was probably one of the last to die of the Apostles. Many of them had been martyred, and many of them were obviously older than John. John was the youngest of the Apostles, it was believed, probably being in a later teen when he was following Christ. And so he had lived much longer than many. He had not been martyred. He had been definitely persecuted and pushed out of cities and had to travel to different places, but he was never forced out. He was never killed. And so we can say that this letter was probably written in the latter part of the first century, probably 85 to 95 AD. So this is definitely a, a latter point, and a lot's happened since Christ's death and resurrection until this point. You've had the destruction of Jerusalem. You've had the various persecutions starting to come down. You've seen the various trials of the Christians. You've seen uh, as churches begin to split because of heresies and false doctrines and false teachings. All of things that First John speaks to. 
He talks about certain things and he calls them the antichrists. And even here, as he opens up this letter, he writes in such a way as to give us a sense of his need to correct bad knowledge, his need to correct bad information. He wants to share what is the truth. Well, where was he at this time? Well, he was probably in Ephesus where he spent the latter part of his life writing to churches in that surrounding area. And now the question is, is what is the reason or the purpose for this letter? Well, John gives a clear reason in chapter 5 and verse 13. If you want to turn there with me, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. What is his goal? That you may know that you have eternal life. Why was he writing this? He was writing this to address heresies that had splintered the church. He was writing this to address all of these things that were causing doubt in the believers. And he's saying, I'm writing this so that you may know that you have eternal life. This isn't, a, this isn't something that may happen for you or that may occur, but that you may know without a doubt that you have eternal life if you are indeed in Christ. So it's possible that John, in writing this, is addressing a specific type of heresy that was going on in the area. It was called Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, or to, to know, to have a deeper knowledge And they had this belief in a cosmological dualism, a strict asceticism. They had this belief that there was a separation between the spirit and the material world. And the spirit was good and the material was bad. And so they could say God was perfect because he was all spirit. And man, man was not good because he was all flesh. He was all material. And you needed to escape that physical. You needed to escape all of those evils of the physical world. And so then they practiced strict asceticism. They would do things to punish their bodies. They would do things to hinder every aspect of joy in their physical sense. Many of them obviously living strict lives of celibacy, never marrying. Many of them not eating for days on end. Many of them abusing their bodies, wanting to put to death any aspect of any physical pleasure. They wanted their bodies to be completely dead. Because they wanted the spirit to reign supreme. And they felt like these things were just constantly in battle. And they, it was like they needed the spirit. And they needed this deeper knowledge that could only come if the flesh was put to death. And not in a Christian sense, but in a just physical abuse sense. This actually leads to something very interesting. Is Many of the monastic orders that we see coming out of Roman Catholicism follow under this same path. While they may not say it, they are practicing it. Lives of strict poverty, lives of endless fasting, lives of not engaging with the world, not talking. You have monks and nuns that spend their whole lives where they are not allowed to talk ever again. Except for maybe at certain instances, certain 
things may come up where they are allowed to speak, but they spend most of their lives never speaking again. Strict asceticism. Preventing the body from any kind of pleasures, no clothing or comforts, no bed to lay on. They repudiated the material creation as evil, and they supported this existence of a divine spark in humans that needed to just be pulled out and grown. One of the heresies that came out of Gnosticism was called docetism. Docetism. It's one of the, like I said, heresies that spawned out. And really what it said was that because the material world is so evil and the spirit world is so good, Christ's body could not be real. They had to take it to their full extent, right? They had to say, if the spirit is good and material world is evil, then good could not reside in evil. And so they would say Christ was not real, but he was more of a phantasm or a a celestial substance of sorts. He was like a ghost, an apparition, a hallucination. So anytime you looked upon the risen Christ or upon the earthly Christ as he walked upon the earth, they would say, that wasn't really him. That was something in your mind. There was something going on that was making you see him, but it wasn't him. Because he couldn't be physical. Because they had to be so separate. And so as we dive into our text, we're going to see John addressing specifically that. That's why he says things like, I touched him. I saw him. I heard him. He's talking about the senses because he wants people to know that this was a true human God became flesh. It's no wonder that he starts this way in the text. He doesn't have time to go on with all these pleasantries. He just says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. This is what I want you to know. He is real. So either way, John's desire is clear. The letter shows it here in this opening verse. He wants them to know the truth. And he wants us as hearers of this now to know the truth. That they know who and what Christ was. He was a human. And what he has done. And and John desired for the believers, and we should desire this as well, to know that you are only saved by him. It's the only, only way of salvation. Remember that as people are reading this letter in the first century and early second century, many of them probably had never read John's gospel. We don't know the extent of how much that had spread and how much that had been given out. Copies had been made of it. Remember, every copy had to be done by hand. And so many had not read it. And so it's like he takes all of John and he condenses it and he says, I'm writing this that you may know that you may have eternal life through the only Savior, Jesus Christ. And so throughout 1 John, we see themes that continue to pop up. The significance of truth. The significance of obedience. And the glorious joy that we have in him. And so as we get started in our text this morning, I invite you to see four main points that we split one per verse. Verse one, the word of life is 
physical. Verse 2, the word of life is manifested. Verse 3, the word of life is uniting. In verse 4, the word of life is joyful. And so let us dive right into our text this morning. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which you have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. As I said, what a different start to a letter. He doesn't even bother to try and introduce himself. It's like they, he knows who, that the people that receive this, they'll know it's him. They'll know because of the truth that he's laying out for them right here, right now. Those first two words, he says, that which, or as the NASB translate, translates it, what, what was from the beginning. He doesn't name Jesus directly. He doesn't name the glorious gospel directly. But no, rather he points and he says, that which, I appreciate, I'm an ESV guy, as you know, but I appreciate the NASB's translation there of saying what. Because John is not only speaking of the physical person of Jesus Christ, but the message that comes from and through him, as we will see in our text this morning. He goes on to say, that which we have heard and we have touched, it's not a message of health and wealth. It's not a message of good stories. It's not a message of good karma. Do good and good will come back. No, the message that is said here is that in and through the risen Christ, one can be saved. For Christ is the one with the Father and Christ is the only way, the truth and the life. John goes on from this wild beginning that he says that which and he lays out Five glorious truths about this word of life. And the fact that the word of life is indeed physical. He says he was from the beginning. I hope this harkens back to what you just read earlier in John chapter 1. The gospel of John in chapter 1. Do you remember what it says? It says in the beginning. That which was from the beginning. He says in the beginning in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. John chapter 1 and verse 1 refers back to before the creation of the world. For he goes on to speak about the creation being through the word and that nothing could be created without the word. So how does 1 John see beginning? Well, multiple arguments have been made. John could be referring to the beginning of Christ's life at his conception. John could be referring to the initiation of Christ's ministry. John can be referring to the time eternally of Christ existing before the dawn of time, before the creation of the world. All these things are true of Christ. He is eternal. He was present before the world was ever formed. He was with the Father from eternity past. He was conceived in his mother, Mary, a virgin as we saw last week in Matthew. He had a ministry that was 
started at a specific time and in a specific place. So yes, and amen to all of those things. So to answer the question, what does he mean by the beginning? Well, all of the above, but specifically, I I think he is speaking to the eternal nature of Christ. I believe that he is hearkening back to his gospel and he's saying, this Christ, this one that was from the beginning, he's letting you know he did enter into the world. Remember, there's people that have not read his gospel. He's hearkening back and he's saying, I'm going to condense some of this information so that you know that when I tell you this, you know it to be true. That which was from the beginning. John chapter 8 and verse 58. Remember, Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus speaking about his own eternality. The fact that he has been around from before the foundations of the world were laid. He says, which we have heard. He's speaking to a first-hand experience. John is now speaking to the very nature of Christ on this earth. Some have argued that it could be a second-hand thing. The words here could be second-hand. Maybe he heard about hearing about Christ. However, as many... Cups and shirts now say you can do all things through a verse taken out of context. We look back at the larger context and we see that he's speaking specifically to first-hand experiences. He has seen with his eyes, he has looked upon and he has touched with his hands. Remember, the apostles have heard directly from Christ. How shall we escape such or how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation right it was declared first by the lord the lord jesus proclaimed the way of salvation also in verse 5 we see a little later of first john chapter 1 this is the message we heard from him and we proclaim to you that god is light and in him there is no darkness at all John continues, he says, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon. Talking again to these first-hand experiences. I can only imagine that as John is penning this letter, he's thinking back on the day when he was called. Remember from Mark chapter 1 and verse 19, and going a little further, this is talking about Jesus himself. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and and John, his brother who were in the boat mending their nets and immediately called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed them. Imagine that. Imagine that very moment you're in a boat working on nets and a man comes by and he says, follow me. They don't even take time to say, well, let me finish mending my nets so my father can continue to fish. They don't even take a moment's break, but they just go and they run out to him. What a glorious, glorious reality that is. What a glorious beauty it must have been to see the Savior. To hear that voice penetrate their hearts. Because nowadays, anybody tells you to follow them, you're wary, right? In our world today, if somebody came up to you and said, hey, follow me. They're going to be like, I don't know where you're going. I'm not following you, man. Unless you're going to lunch somewhere, I'm probably not going to join you. They're going to stay away. 
We hear too many stories of people saying, follow me, and then they end up getting mugged. I'm not getting mugged today. But no, James and John heard him call out to them and he said, yes, we'll come. We'll leave it all behind and we'll come. I'm going to turn back to Matthew chapter 17 just briefly. Another instance of him saying, I saw and I looked upon Christ. Matthew 17, the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother. Remember, this is James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the ones that had been called out of the boat. And he led them on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, they appeared to him, Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here with you. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. John has seen, he has looked upon, not only the physical Christ, but this transfigured Christ where his face shone like the sun. The Greek word here for looked upon is used 20 times, 22 times, 19 outside of the epistle of 1 John. And every time it refers to a physical aspect of seeing. Using these two words, because you almost look at it and you say it's repetitive, right? He says he has seen and then he says he's looked upon. It's the same thing. What do you mean? Why does he say it that way? Well, he's giving a kind of separate words when you look at the Greek, have seen being a perfect tense, relating the author as an eyewitness. I have seen and then looked upon the aorist tense, which is only found in the Greek. It conveys a single discrete action, the tense relating to the physical action of seeing in and of itself. And so it's like he's hitting home at both, he's a witness, he's seen him, and then he's saying, And in the physical sense, like there was instances where I can recall having looked upon him and have touched with our hands, physical touching. To touch, we see this in Luke 24 and Hebrews 12, it's a physical aspect. There's only one instance where it's used metaphorically, but it's made clear by the context found in Acts chapter 17. He touched Christ. We can remember the story where they're at the Last Supper back in John chapter 13. I'm going to just turn there. You don't have to join me. John chapter 13. They're at the Passover meal. Sorry, not at the Last Supper. At the Passover meal. And he says, uh, chapter 13 and verses 21 and through 24. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled with the Spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table. This is talking about John himself, right? He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he says, Simon Peter motioned to him and said, 
Hey, ask Jesus. Mm-hmm. What does he mean by that? Who, who is it? And what happens? What does John do? He leans back against Jesus. Physical touch. He leaned against him. I don't know how many hugs went around this morning as we gathered, but you knew for certain the people were here, right? You felt them. You felt them with you. And John is saying, I felt the same thing. I felt the same thing. Touched with his hands concerning the word of life. Now, this is one of the trickiest phrases in all of the New Testament, if you ask me, just because of studying it for the last several days, and especially yesterday, spending significant time in this. You have differing views when it comes to what do we mean by the word of life? The person and work of Christ, the Savior. The word of life is both physical and real and came into this world. But the word of life is also the work of Christ and salvation for lost sinners like you and me. For Christ is not merely a vocal word. He's a life-giving one. He is a living word. He brings life and the life eternal which we see being the goal of this letter. That the believers may know that they have eternal life. It is in and through Christ that we may gain eternal life with him. This is not just a history book. This is not just a grouping of good stories to look back and read. We do that, right? We read history and we can separate ourselves because those were distant things that happened at a distant time to a distant people. We can step back and we can say, I wasn't there. I don't know everything. This doesn't really impact me. But no, this is a living word. Because Christ is alive. Because he is risen. And through him we gain eternal life. We get new life. We become new creations. We are born again. These are not just history books. They have the power to bring about salvation through the proclamation of the word of God. And so the word of life, being both the person and the work of Christ our Savior. So we start off verse 1 here with some glorious truths about Christ and the experience of John. John says that Christ was from the beginning. He was heard as he proclaimed the very gospel message that would bring about salvation, both for John and for the other apostles. And it would be the message that John would go out to profess. He is seen to be in the physical world. He was personal. He was touchable. He was not some hallucination, not some phantasm, not some ghost, but rather he was a real, live human being. And before we move on to our next point, I just want to briefly mention to you that John continually says we throughout this passage. If you notice that, he doesn't say which I have heard, which I have seen, which I have looked upon. He says, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon. Why? Why does he do this? He counteracts every aspect of any argument that could be made that it was just him. He wants to make sure that there's no one 
nowhere that could say, well, that's just some old guy that's lost his mind. Imagine at this time, he's in his 80s, 90s, writing this letter. And somebody just says, that's just an old guy that doesn't know what he's talking about anymore. He says, no, we, we have seen it. We have touched him. We have heard him. Our hands, our hands together have touched him. Harkens back to Thomas, right? He said, I don't believe, but if, you, if I could just touch you, maybe, maybe I would believe. And he says, come, put your hand on my side. Feel me. Feel my wounds. And John says, we've touched the risen Christ. He remembers back to what we hear about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that there was 500 that he was appeared to. That there was a group, a gathering. It wasn't just one person in one spot. And this is different from every other religion. This is different from every other belief system. This is different from everything else that we hear. Because John was not the only one. There was many that heard the risen Christ. There was many that saw him, that felt him. Unlike Islam, where you had a man who went into a mountain or a cave and he heard from God. And then he comes back and says, here's what I heard. Unlike Buddhism, who he went out by himself until he reached nirvana and separated from the world. Unlike Joseph Smith, who went out into the forest and found gold plates and received some special ability to translate them. No, friends, this is not some separated thing. This is not an individual. No, this is a body of people who got to see the risen Christ. And so John says, we together have seen him. This isn't just me. This isn't just my thoughts on the situation. This is the entirety of it. And so let us turn to our next point. The word of life was manifested. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to you. Or sorry, made manifest to us. Jesus Christ was revealed or made visible in the incarnation. Remember, Christ was not created. He was not made, but he was revealed. Or as the text here, it says manifested. John chapter 1 and verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among you. And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is critical, friends, to the true Christ of the scriptures. The only one who saves. If we want to believe in the true Christ, we must believe that he was manifested. That he was revealed. That he entered into the earth, but he was not created. He was not made. He wasn't the result of just a normal pregnancy. These things are all critical. And we must confess them and believe them. For if not, you fall into heresies. Christ is just another man. Or Christ is the son of God, but he wasn't really like we see here on earth. It's just whatever you thought in your mind at the time, this little hallucination that happened. 
weird chemicals triggering in your brain. If you do not believe that Christ came to this earth, was born and lived among mankind, then you do not believe in the Christ of the scriptures and you do not believe in a Christ that saves. If you confess anything other than that, you do not believe in a Christ that saves you. Christ came, lived a perfect, sinless life, died the death that we deserve as a propitiation for our sins. His blood was poured out on our behalf. The wrath of God poured on him that justice may be fulfilled. If he didn't do this, then we're all in dire straits. If he was not truly manifest, if he had not truly entered this world and he was just some spirit that died on a cross in some hallucination, then there's no salvation there. Death had to occur. Wrath had to be poured out. These things must happen. And so thankfully, as we see from John, the life was made manifest. And he echoes again the same message. He says, we've seen it. This life manifested. We've seen it. There's no doubt that Christ was real and alive and walking amongst the people. And testifies to it. John says that he is a witness to the person and work of the Savior. Not only that, John serves as proof of who Christ was. But he can say, I know him because of what he's done in me. He was just like you and me. He was a sinner on a ship mending nets when he was called out by Christ. Just like many of you working jobs or in school or married and living lives. And suddenly the Savior came out of nowhere. You weren't looking, weren't asking, weren't seeking It's not like John was pretending to mend a net while he looked out on the horizon hoping that the Savior might just walk up any second now. No, he was doing what he was always done. He was working because he needed to work. And the Savior came and called him. He was a sinner in need of a Savior just like you and me. And he says, and he proclaimed to you the eternal life, the nature of life and fellowship with God. John testifies to the word of life and he proclaims it, namely that the word of life is eternal. John chapter 5 and verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. We see that life eternal was first revealed in Christ and then given to us as believers to enjoy with him forever. He says, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The eternal life, namely Jesus Christ, was with the Father from the beginning of time and is now made manifest to John and to the others who saw him during his earthly life. And he says, he was there and then he became with us. He was with the Father and then he was present with us. What a glorious reality. Not only to think of the incarnate God coming to this earth, but to think of the incarnate God who had lived throughout all eternity past. Entering into time and space with these people who would eventually die. And he would be risen up and he would be brought back into the heavenly realms. What a glorious reality. John in his repetition is making a pretty strong argument here. For his fellow believers who are 
in the midst of these ongoing challenges of the early church, the heresies that are flying about, Gnosticism and Docetism, Christ was real. He was physical. But this was not to say that he was just like us. For Christ is eternal. He was from before the foundation of the world. He is coming into this world, not as a creation, but a manifestation. Not as a creation, but as a revealing of what was already there. For he had existed before time. So now that we've had some good truths laid out, we come to our verse 3, our third point, the word of life is uniting. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John echoes his previous statement, we have seen him, we have heard him. His eyes have beheld and his ears have heard and perceived this word of life. He says, we proclaim it to you. This that they have seen and this that they have heard is what they now proclaim. Notice they don't just proclaim the person of Christ, but they proclaim his message, the work that was accomplished in him. They say what we have heard, what we've seen. They don't just describe his height. They don't describe his weight, his favorite food his hair color, but rather they get to his very nature. His message of salvation is true work of salvation that was finished at the cross. They proclaim Christ. It harkens our minds back to 1 Corinthians in chapter 2, right? For I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says, I am proclaiming all that I have seen, all that I have known, all that I perceived about him. And what was the reason? So that you too may have fellowship with us. What is the outworking of the proclamation? Salvation. And salvation comes with fellowship. We have fellowship even today with the apostles and all believers throughout history that have believed in the only Savior. For fellowship is indeed crucial, critical to the life of a Christian. That's why we gather here. It's part of the reason that we gather together. It's why God encouraged, not just for corporate worship, but for fellowship, for building one another up. But something that we must hold on to and something that John is arguing for here as he lays out these beautiful truths is that doctrine matters. What we believe is essential for true fellowship. Without real truth, without real doctrinal support amongst each other, there's no foundation for fellowship. There's a difference between Christian fellowship and enjoying one another. It's an important thing. So many people leave churches these days because they just don't really like the other people. But the real question should be asked of, what is the truth being found in there? What is the truth being taught? Some people stay at churches because they like the people. But then the truth is not being professed and they're not on solid ground together. Fighting for the same things, believing the same beliefs, arguing the same arguments. It's important that we hold on to what is truth. You can have worldly fellowship at the bar. 
You can have worldly fellowship at work. You can have worldly fellowship in any number of places. Your kids' sports teams, the parents there, the kids can have worldly fellowship there. You can have worldly fellowship even within your own family. But Christian fellowship, fellowship that's built on truth, is different. It's fellowship that is separating. It's fellowship that holds doctrine. It's fellowship that enjoys coming together under the word of God and in truth to support truth, to fight for truth. That's why we must hold on to truth. All the things that John has laid out, that the word is eternal, that the word is living, that the word manifested, that the word is shared. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship isn't just here with one another. It's not just a horizontal fellowship, but a greater fellowship, a vertical fellowship. Because all of this doesn't matter if we don't have this. This will all just pass away if we don't have a vertical fellowship. A fellowship with the Father and the Son. John chapter 17 and verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. John chapter 15, he talks about the vines and being connected to the vine. Without connection to the vine, without connection to Christ himself, This is all for naught. This is not true Christian fellowship. And so we should desire those things. And we should desire first a fellowship with the Father. We should desire a fellowship with the Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. And may that shape then our fellowship with one another. May that build us in deeper fellowship with one another under the truths of the gospel, under the truths of God's word. That we build one another up, that we grow in glorious joy together. Which comes to our final point. The word of life is joyful. Charles Spurgeon once said, There is no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. The word of life is joyful. John finishes out his introduction here and he says, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. One of John's goals in writing this letter was ultimately to bring joy. To find joy in Christ. You can imagine as people are being bombarded with heresies as we all are today. It's easy to lose joy. It's easy to feign from joy. It's easy to fall away from the joy that we have in the salvation of Christ. So frequently we find ourselves just complaining, don't we? We find ourselves sitting idly, thinking to ourselves, what roughness this is, what life challenges we have. And we've lost all joy that has come in the person and work of Christ that saved us. John's desire is that the believer 
has brought true joy in the glories of Christ. What a joy it is to know the word of life, the good news of Jesus Christ, the blessed Savior, who brings you salvation and eternal life. Don't become lukewarm. Don't lose the joy that you had at first. But hold on to the joy that you find in the risen Savior. The fellowship that we have with him. Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes the joy that is found here that John is speaking well of. Joy is something very deep and profound. Something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There is only one thing that can give true joy and that is contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. And in him I am complete. In him I am complete. Joy, in other words, is the response and reaction to the soul of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a joy it is to know the Savior, the Word of Life. Christ also brings us fellowship that we might have joy. Not only with believers, obviously, but with himself and with the Father. John acknowledges that through knowing the truth and the fellowship that comes through salvation, one's joy may be complete. He realizes that this joy and the hearer of this word would be brought true joy in knowing the true Christ and being united to him and his bride, the church. Outside of that, all of it is fleeting. Outside of knowing Christ and being saved by Christ, every joy that we seem to have is a fleeting joy. Every glory is a fleeting glory. Every happiness is fleeting happiness. Every proud moment is fleeting. For none of it lasts. None of it matters if we do not have the joy that is found in Christ. So we come to the end of our text. And as we close, I'd like to just leave you with these thoughts. What should we take away from this? Well, for the believer, may this be an encouragement to you. This is a glorious passage of encouragement. It's beautiful. Christ is real. He was manifested on this earth. He was heard and seen and touched. And we have accounts of him from the very one who spent time with him. The very one that laid against him. The very one that was called out by him. The very one that died, or that stood there as Jesus died on a cross. The very one that knew Christ. We have his accounts. This should drive us to great encouragement as there is going to be an ever going battle for truth. You know, there's many people out there today that are probably preaching from 1 John. There's plenty of churches that are out there preaching from 1 John and these specific verses and even talking about godly fellowship and Christ being real. But the reality is is that they're doing it out of a sense of self-promotion, a sense of self, uh, self-appreciation, self-growth. And John says, no, look to Christ. Look to the one that I saw. Look to the one that I touched. 
There's going to be people that are going to try and insert their own truths into this. There are going to be people that are going to insert their own beliefs on who Christ was and what he's done. And he says, no, I know Christ and I'm telling him or telling you about him. There's going to be many who say he didn't exist, that Christ wasn't real. They're going to say that he was never even real. It's just some history books that were wrong. They're going to say, well, how would we know? You know, there was the big fire in the Alexandria uh, library. Maybe things got burned that would have told us about the Old Testament or about anything else. There's going to be many that say he didn't exist. There's others that would say that he did, but they would deny the truths of him, that he was manifested, that he was truly here as man. Well, the man who wrote this letter, John, is the same one who wrote the gospel. He's displaying the many glorious experiences we've, we have in Christ. We can have assurance that Christ is real. May this passage also be an encouragement to go forth and proclaim Christ. For he is the only Savior, and we must look upon the life of John and seek to do as he says. For we have experienced salvation. Now, let us grow and proclaim Christ. Let us go forth and proclaim the one who came, the one who was from eternity past, to save us. May this passage also drive you towards deeper fellowship. First with our triune God, but also with one another. May we be driven towards the fellowship that is found only in Christ. The fellowship that stirs up love and growth within each other. To the glory of God. Friends, I don't know how many times we have, even within our own church, fellowship that is shallow at best. Shallow at best. John's desire is not for that. God's desire is not for that. Our desire should not be for that. We should be here to build one another up. We should be here to ask the difficult questions. We should be here to challenge one another and encourage one another and pray with one another. To love one another. To understand one another well. For remember, we're building ourselves up on the same truths. On the same truths. And so we should be able to build one another up in the Word of God. And finally, may this passage also be an encouragement to find true joy in knowing Christ and His salvation. Short sharing in the glorious gifts that we have in Him, namely the fellowship with Him and one another. May we find the joy that can only be found in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Friends, if you are here today and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you. As we read in our affirmation of faith, we believe that the end of the world is approaching. Time will come where there will be no opportunity to repent. Time will come when there will be no opportunity to turn to Christ Time will come where there's going to be truly the end and Christ will judge. And so, friends, I invite you, if you are not a believer here in the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent and believe on him.
For he is true. He is real. He was heard and seen and looked upon and touched. He was made manifest and he was heard again and proclaimed. And this is the same message that has been proclaimed in the word of God here. That in him we might be saved. That in him we might find fellowship with him and with the Father. And in him we might find fellowship, true fellowship with one another. And what is the end? That we might have eternal life and by so doing joy. Endless, endless joy. Friends, let us join in prayer.